0: Noah and the Whale is the really rather clever name and title of this group from London who had a massive single last year uh, called L-I-F-E-G-O-S-O-N. O-E-S-O-N. Sorry, I missed a letter. I'd see. Oh, thank I'm glad people are awake still. Jonah and the Whale is the really rather unfortunate Subtitle of one of the most intriguing books of the Old Testament. You see, whenever many people hear the name Jonah, they immediately think of a whale. The whale. And therein lies a problem. Now, I know I'm being slightly provocative, but please stay with me. You see, I fully appreciate that there is a big fish in Jonah's story. And its role in the story is fascinating, and some would say theologically very significant. But if we immediately connect and identify and associate Jonah with a whale, then we have missed so much. In fact, we have missed the very heart of the story. Because right at the, the core of this short book, and it's only... Four chapters in length, we encounter the amazing reality of God's outrageous, or, use Richard's phrase, lavish love for all the world. And his desire to offer hope and forgiveness to everyone. Even those people we think don't deserve it. Even those people who we are convinced don't deserve a way back. G. Campbell Morgan it like this. Men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. And today and on Sunday morning, the 1st of April, I hope that we will see beyond the wheel and beyond the worm, which we'll come to in two weeks, and catch a fresh glimpse, a renewed vision of the incredible and deep and compassionate heart of God for all those, all those he has created. Because via this compelling story, and it is a gripping read from first to last verse, we are confronted with with a truth and a fact, uh, an exciting discovery. And this was something that we did actually stress during our essential word journey, that there is no one beyond the reach of God's forgiveness and love. Do you believe that? Do you honestly believe that? Or let me put that slightly differently and offer you a direct quote from the book itself, from the story, from the lips of Jonah, uh, as he says it in language that should cause us to just stop. Cause us to pause and to worship. You are, says Jonah, a merciful and compassionate God. Slow to get angry, you're filled with unfailing love, you are eager to turn back. From destroying people. Can I invite you to just breathe that in. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy. You're not easily angered. You're rich in love. And ready at the drop of a hat. To turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. That is our God. That is what this story is about. It's about Jonah and a great God. It's not about Jonah and a whale. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 1 to page 927. In the Bibles that are in the pews. And I am going to kind of go through this as a narrative story. Because that's actually what it is. It is a narrative story. And so I'm not so much going to read it as I'm going to tell it or I'm going to invite you to sort of follow it through with me. And right up front, please do have a copy of God's word in front of you. But right up front, you discover that the word of God comes to Jonah and he is instructed to go. He's instructed to go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it. And so Jonah's calling and his commission is clear. Right from the very start, you have to go. Here's what you have to go and do. And as a matter of interest, this isn't the only time Jonah shows up in scripture. Back in 2 Kings chapter 14, we read that Jonah prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam. And many of you will also know that Jesus referred to Jonah in Matthew's gospel. So Jonah's prophetic credentials are really a given. And here he is charged with a message. Go preach against the city of Nineveh. But why? Well, have a look at the end of verse 1. Because, says God, their wickedness has become increasingly apparent to me. You see, God sees the acts, the attitudes, the behavior of everyone. God misses nothing. And during this series, we've got kind of used to prophets doing what they're asked to do. Amos and Hosea. God gave them a task and despite how difficult it was, how uncomfortable it was, they did it. They shared it. And so when you read verse 3 of Jonah chapter 1, you're kind of taken a little bit surprised. Because it says, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. In other words, he thinks, no chance God. No chance. And he legs it and he heads in the opposite direction. And immediately you realise that, well here's a prophet with a difference. He's not exactly obedient. In fact, here's a rebellious prophet, a stubborn prophet, a scared prophet, a non-compliant prophet. And maybe that's why lots of us relate to him. Maybe that's why lots of people like Jonah. Because you see, we find him intriguing, even I dare say some of us find him endearing. Because we know that if God came to us like he came to Hosea and says, go marry a prostitute, we would like it. Hosea did it. For Amos, go and tell the people that I'm coming like a roaring lion. We would like it. Amos did it. Jonah, who preets against the Ninevites, he heads in the opposite direction. And we think, do you know something? I would do exactly that. And so we like Jonah. And Jonah doesn't like the sound of what he's been asked to do, but maybe more importantly, and as the story unfolds, we discover that this is the real issue. He doesn't like who he's been told to go and speak to. It's not really the what, it's the who. And as you read this short book, you don't get a massive insight into the makeup of the Ninevites. You don't really discover if you read the four chapters in Jonah what Nineveh was actually like. But if you read Nahum... You find that the people of Nineveh were guilty of, and let me just quote some things, they were guilty of hatching evil plots against God, they were guilty of exploiting the helpless, they were guilty of war crimes, they were guilty of idolatry, they were guilty of prostitution, they were guilty of witchcraft. This was obviously a pretty sick, broken, dysfunctional society. And so going there to bring God's word was going to be a challenge. It's going to be really hard. But the primary reason for Jonah's reaction, and this becomes disturbingly clear in the rest of the story, is that quite honestly, Jonah didn't like the people. The thought of offering them forgiveness, the thought of offering them a way back to God, well that's stuck in Jonah's throat. As far as he was concerned, those Ninevites did not did not deserve a chance to experience God's transforming love. And I wonder, do you ever feel like that? As you read your newspapers, as you watch your TV screens, and you watch what people are doing to other people, and you watch how people blaspheme God and just trample all over God's laws and God's values, I wonder, do you think to yourself, do you know something? They don't deserve God's love. They don't deserve the opportunity for forgiveness. And so, verse 3, Jonah runs. Now everything about that reaction is utter madness. For a start, it's blatantly disobedient. You know, when God speaks into our lives, when God is explicit, there is a real temptation to bury our heads in the sands, to block our ears, to turn and run, but that will only ever lead to further difficulties in our faith and our spiritual well-being. God often asks us to do tough stuff, and generally the tough stuff that God always asks us to do involves other people. But never does God ask us to do something or to go somewhere for the sake of it. There's always, again, to quote Richard, a bigger picture. There's always a greater purpose. It's always for our own growth and development. It's always to nurture us as human beings in order that we might live the holistic lives that we were called to live. Let me give you one example, and it's only one. We have been told to love and to bless and to pray for our enemies. That's something God has explicitly told us to do as Christians. Those who follow him, those who have chosen to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, have been told to love, bless, and pray for our enemies. How difficult is that? How annoying is that? How unnatural is that? What's your reaction? Do you obey or do you turn and run? And yet we know that if we do it, our lives will be enhanced. Whereas if we don't, then bitterness is going to set in. Our hearts are going to harden. We're going to drift further and further away from our love of God and our love for our neighbor. And Jonah opts for disobedience. And the second crazy aspect of Jonah's reaction is in thinking that he could run away from the Lord. You can't run away from someone who is everywhere. Psalm 139. In fact, when you think about it, you can never run away from God. In fact, you only ever run towards him. Which is exactly what happened to Jonah. Jonah. I mean, did Jonah create distance by heading for Tarshish? Maybe in his head, maybe in his thinking, maybe in his mind. If I run there, then I'm going to create distance between me and God. But as the story unfolds, it turns out that God is right there. You see, God is always right there. God is always right here. Out of sight, out of mind. Well, that was probably Jonah's hope. Reality is, you can run, but you can never hide from God. And Jonah tries to avoid God. And I wonder, do we sometimes fall into that trap? I just, I need to avoid you, God. And so he jumps in a boat. And I take a look down at verse 10 for a moment, because... Jonah is really honest with the crew. And I know I'm jumping ahead, but you need to see this bit in verse 10. Because it's pretty clear that he has been really honest with the crew. He doesn't say, listen, I want to go to Tarshish because I'm visiting someone. He doesn't say, I'm going to Tarshish because I fancy a day trip. He says, listen, I'm running away from the Lord. That's why I'm on this boat. I am running. That's what it says in verse 10. I'm running away from the Lord. Now, I'm not sure of what those sailors made of that at the time. But as the story unfolds, they quickly start making connections. And the narrative doesn't let up because immediately we're told that a great wind and a violent storm erupts. Although again, that's not the whole story because if you read the text, text, it actually says God sends the storm. You see, he is the powerful God of the created order. And so if God wants to, God can stir up any kind of storm. And this must have been some storm because the seasoned sailors on the ship are driven to their knees to pray to their gods. And meanwhile, Jonah sleeps. You see, it's tiresome business running away from God. It really is tiresome. And so the captain screams at him and he says, Will you get up and cry out to your God because maybe, just maybe, your God can save us. So, you know, One of the, the really interesting and sobering aspects of this story is the realisation that because of Jonah's disobedience, a whole crew are put at risk. And that often happens. Nine times out of ten, our decision to do our own thing doesn't just impact our own lives. Yes, when we choose to be disobedient, we suffer. But I'll guarantee you this, see, whenever you choose to be disobedient, other people suffer. And in Jonah's story, that's exactly what happened. He thinks it's just me. No, it's not. You've just put an entire ship at risk. Whenever I decide to do it my way as opposed to God's, I often end up in a mess, yes. But you know something? I often cause other people's lives to end up in a mess. And that's a reality worth bearing in mind the next time you're tempted to run. And the sailors, what they decide to do is, look, let's draw lots. Because clearly praying to their gods wasn't working. And also, there's no record of Jonah taking up the captain's suggestion to pray to his God. I wonder why Jonah didn't pray to his God. You see, whenever you're living with disobedience, whenever you're trying to run away from God, prayer tends to be avoided. And so, using this rather novel method of drawing lots, the sailors decide, look, let's try to suss out who's to blame. Who is responsible for this disaster? And according to verse 7... As coincidence has it, the lots fall on Jonah. And that's fascinating, isn't it? It's funny how the lots fall on Jonah. And just to give you a definition of coincidence, a coincidence is a miracle for which God chooses to remain anonymous. That is brilliant. You see, at this point, the, the sailors start... Asking Jonah some rather pointed and direct questions regarding his background and identity it 's there and jonah 's answer at this point it 's fascinating he says this i 'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land now, given what he 's doing in that he 's running away from the Creator God, he claims to worship the sailor 's response. The Jonah's answer is understandable. One, yes, they're terrified, but secondly, they challenge Jonah's behaviour. Like if you are a Hebrew, and you do worship the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, then what have you done? See, it's never easy or comfortable whenever we find ourselves being challenged and questioned about our faith by those who don't share our faith. If you worship God, then why are you doing that? If you worship this God that you claim to worship, why are you living like that? If you worship God, why are you behaving like that? And at this point, Jonah accepts personal responsibility. Again, God uses all sorts of means to speak into our lives. And he confesses, listen, it is my fault. And these guys find themselves in a mess. And so he says, look, just throw me overboard. Because Jonah has come to a place of realizing that with choices come consequences. Something we've been stressing time and time again throughout this series. And Jonah's reached that point to say, and I know I've made poor choices, now I need to suffer the consequences, chuck me overboard. But they don't, they won't do it. Instead, it says they try to row for land which is never happening in light of the storm. But what is interesting is that here we have a prime example of people who don't claim to know God expressing genuine compassion towards another fellow human being. Maybe even more compassion than the Christian in their midst who's actually running away from showing compassion. One of the things that I often find, and I'm speaking into my own life here, okay, is that non-Christians... Tend to put me to shame in terms of compassion. As I look around sometimes. It's those who don't claim to have a faith and belief in God. Who are the most compassionate towards their fellow human beings. Not always. Speaking into my own life. And then something remarkable happens. And I'll be honest. Here's a part of the story that I've glossed over before. There is an incredible transformation of individual lives in the midst of a whole pile of mess and mayhem. The sailors pray. Now please don't miss this. The sailors pray. Only this time, not to their gods. But to the God. They cry out to the Lord, to Yahweh. They use the most sacred name that you can use of God in the Old Testament. Look at verse 14. Please, Lord, Capital L O R D Please, Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Here is a paradigm shift. Here is a reorientation of the heart. The one true God is recognized as sovereign. You've done as you pleased. And lives are changed and jonah ends up in the water well that's what he wanted and then two things happen when jonah hits the ocean first the sea goes calm equilibrium is restored Secondly, there's even a more miraculous restoration taking place back on board the ship because whenever the sea is stilled, the sailors experience fear. Only this time it's not, oh dear, we're really scared. It's a fear of the Lord. The entirely appropriate fear of the Lord. Look at verse 16. At this the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And they made vows to him. You see while Jonah is treading water. There is now a ship above him. Filled with passionate worshippers. Who are committing their lives to God. The amazing part of this story. Totally brilliant. Brilliant. Here's a bunch of sailors, do not know God. Fell to their knees, cried out to their gods. And now, they're worshipping the God. Offering sacrifices to him. Committing their lives to him. And do you know something? I have never seen that before. I'm such a rubbish pastor. (laughs) But what I love about that is what it says to me that even in the midst of Jonah's disobedience, even in spite of Jonah running away from God, in fact, even through Jonah's disobedience, God is still rescuing lives. God is still saving people. Even when I we get it badly wrong, God is still at work. God is still able to accomplish his purposes. God is still able to turn lives upside down and inside out. And so what you have here is a reluctant prophet bobbing up and down in the ocean while a boat full of new believers head for Tarshish to tell a story. And who knows what God did in that place through their lives. You see, there is no one beyond the reach of God's forgiveness and love. And we haven't even got to Nineveh. But God has saved the whole ship of people. Who knows what God did in Tarshish through there? See God can take my disobedience. And even in the midst of it. He's still in the business of changing lives. It's not all about me. Now. Quarter two. Not done. Full chapter to go. <laughs> right. Do a wee bit more. Just a wee bit. Now Jonah hasn't exactly covered himself in glory. But the brilliant thing is God doesn't forget Jonah either. In some ways I would have totally understood if God had just left Jonah Bobby. But, but he doesn't. And here we come to that part of the story where there is a big fish. And you've got to be reminded that the God is the God of all creation. So not just the wind and the waves obey him, but creatures of the sea obey him. And according to verse 17, the final verse of the first chapter, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, who then, it says, spends the next 72 hours in this dark, difficult place. But at least... Now, Jonah has got an opportunity to take stock of his life. To face up to the reality of a situation and his choices. And now, now, he prays. And you could say about time too. And effectively that is what chapter 2 is. It's just a prayer. All bar one verse is a cry to God. It's poetic and it's incredibly psalm-like. Now, Jonah is not in a great place, but you know something? He's in an important place. Because although you don't want to hang about in dark and difficult places, you sometimes find that it's there you discover the most. It's in the dark places and the difficult places you discover the most. It's there that you're driven to your knees. It's there that you actually realize that my only hope is God. And there may be some people here this morning and you're in a pretty dark difficult place there may be some people listening to this who are not able to be here this morning because they're in a pretty dark difficult place and it's in those places that we find ourselves on our knees RT Kendall said the belly of the fish is not a happy place to live but it's a good place to learn and it's strange how you sometimes learn the most in the lowest moments of life and that was Jonah's story and that's a story that just keeps repeating itself and so here's his prayer the question is did Jonah make this prayer up here and then or was this something he had learnt that he knew in advance and then he grabbed it at this particular time and and he used it there it's an interesting thought Many people censor believe that here was a prayer that was heavily based upon or influenced by a psalm that Jonah was familiar with. This was a psalm he knew and he recalled it in these moments. And if nothing else, that kind of stands as a helpful reminder of how we can and should use the Psalter. How that we can draw upon that God-given treasury of devotion. There's 150 psalms that are actually given to us so that they can help us to cry out to God. Cry out to God in praise, yes. Cry out to God in lament, yes. Cry out to God in intercession, yes. Cry out to God in uh, confession as well. Praying the psalms is one of the most life-renewing disciplines you can ever do. But just as I finish, look at the structure of the psalm. It starts... With where he's at. In my distress. And in verses 3 to 6 he describes the nature of the distress. And it's so important that we are honest with God in our praying. Please be honest with God. But notice that in his distress he calls to the Lord. Yes, here's how it is, but I'm talking to God. I'm not voicing off at everybody else. I'm not even voicing off in front of everybody else, but I am voicing off to God. And God is big enough to take that. This is not a pointless rant into empty space. It's not, as I say, a voicing off to whoever is within earshot. This is a prayer to God, directed to God. He says, In my distress, I called to who? I called to God. And then we must have confidence that God hears, because he says, In my distress, I called to God, and he answered me. You listened to me. You listened to my cry. And then Jonah reminds himself of the fact that God has brought his life up from the pit. Now, notice Jonah's still in the belly of the whale, so this, isn't, this can't be what he's talking about here. This must be a reference to a past time, to a past moment of restoration in Jonah's life. You've brought me up out of the pit. And again, what we are reminded to do is call to mind those times in the past when God has rescued you, when God has been good to you. Yes, you're in a dark and you're in a difficult place at the moment. In your distress, you're calling out to God. He is answering you, but you're calling to mind those times when God's been there for you, when God's been good to you, when you've been so aware of his presence. And then the prayer finishes. And like so many of the Psalms, it finishes with a commitment to praise. Verse 9, it moves from despair to hope. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Remember, Jonah still in the belly of the fish. Hasn't been saved. Hasn't been rescued. And yet he says, I will say. He chooses to praise His external circumstances haven't changed, but his attitude towards them has. He no longer despairs. His situation hasn't shifted, but his response to it has, and prayer can have that effect. And so whatever you're going through, wherever you find yourself this morning, don't give up on prayer. Do not give up on prayer. And although it may be the last thing you feel like doing, walk out of here this morning, go home and cry out to God. Be honest with God. Use the Psalms. Use Jonah's model. Take it. Take yourself to God in prayer. And for Jonah, the breakthrough isn't just in terms of perspective. He actually finds himself at the end of chapter 2, standing on a beach, sand below his feet, sunlight in his face, and he listens as God speaks into his life once again. But that's for two weeks' time.